Welcome to Maker to Market. I'm your host, Amanda George. And on this show, we talk to product developers and marketers and everything in between. I've got a new guest with me today, but I'm going to let him introduce himself. Take it away, Lance. Hi, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Lance Johnson. I am from Whiteboard Geeks. It's a real great honor to be here because we've been working with you on this podcast for a long time and just heard about some of the super fun guests. So hopefully we won't disappoint. (laughs) I think that's hard to do, but thank you for being on the show. As you guys have heard, we do work with Whiteboard Geeks to produce this podcast. And Lance, on the other hand, has an extremely interesting background, which is why we invited him on the show today. If you don't mind for the audience, do you mind giving them sort of a breakdown on your career and, and your background? and how you got to Whiteboard Geeks today. Wow, that's a a fun story. (laughs) And you know, it's great going on podcasts or like meeting people in the industry because your family doesn't really want to know this stuff. They're like, yeah, whatever. And your friends are like, okay, cool. You have a job. Good for you. But it is kind of fun to look back. So I got started because I actually got kicked out of college. So I had gotten a scholarship to Ohio State And then I think managed to fail out within two quarters, which was nice. I felt like I had bonus time versus like one semester at a normal college. Ohio State was on the quarter system at the time. So I needed a way to pay for school. And I was like, how am I going to do this? But had dabbled a little bit in web design. So decided to start doing marketing consulting. Why I thought I could do marketing consulting, I have no idea. But I read a book. It seemed to make sense. I thought it went with the web design stuff well. And so I just cold outreach to people. I made little videos saying, hey, here's some ideas on what you could do differently on your website. And lo and behold, one of the first three people I reached out to got back to me and said, yeah, we'll take your help. Now, they were a chicken coop website where they taught people how to make chicken coops. So not necessarily a booming business, but they had a whole portfolio of brands and said, the chicken coop business doesn't really need a lot of help, but we can put you on some stuff that does. So that was the first foray into marketing. (laughs) I mean, it's an interesting foray because for people that don't study marketing, it's always interesting to hear how people fall into marketing. And I mean, it's almost where we're at the point where we can say every single person is a marketer to some degree. Mm, Yeah, I think you're right. And if you're not a marketer, you probably are going to have to get one on your team or have someone that can handle it because really nothing happens until we get some sales, until we get products moving. So I think that was what drew me to marketing actually was I looked at it and said, man, I want to be able to control my own destiny a little bit. And you can only do that if you're helping the business grow. And that's basically what marketing does, right? At at its core, it's just how can we get more sales? How can we get more people to hear about our business? And how can we show people what a good product we have? Yeah. I like to classify it as the new age marketing because prior to... I think it comes with technology shifts. I think when we hit the social media era that's when marketing really changed. Before that, it, you know, you had your your four Ps that you always had an alignment to. You were so worried about brand. You were worried about, you know, putting out a good message out there. It was very one-sided. And I think now with the shift of social media, we've gotten into new age marketing where marketing really has transformed in the last 10 to 15 years. We're now, as you said, you are involved in not only just the marketing aspect, but you're also in charge of 
revenue when it comes from sales, working yeah. with product teams for you know new enhancement features, et cetera. So it really has changed our dynamic and what marketing looks like. And I think that's why yeah. it's one of the most complicated professions to explain to people. Oh man. Yeah. I think that up until the day my grandmother died, she thought I was an internet scammer. She was just like, <laughs> you make money online. I was like, yeah, grandma, I make money online. She's like, what do you do? Is like, well, they come to our website and they say they want our book and they give us money and we send it to them. And she was just convinced it was a scam. hundred percent. She's like, well, he's not in jail yet, but I know he's a scammer, <laughs> not a scammer oh for the record. Very not a scammer. <laughs> Although I guess that's what a scare would say. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, and this is me admitting that I love reality TV. This is like the way I shut my brain off is watching reality TV. And um, if anyone watches The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, uh, Jen Shaw, that's exactly how she described her marketing business to the feds because she was caught scamming. And she's oh, like, no. Oh. So the, like, as you're saying it, I'm laughing in my head because I'm like, this sounds exactly like Jen Shaw's statements. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I plead the fifth that I'll just say no more on how I got into No, but I think you're right. Going back to your point on what marketing is today, because it's been a really interesting ride. It started off when I was doing direct response for people who were selling survival guides, which mm-hmm. is totally random. Like, if you think the world's going to end at 2012, which plot twist, it did not, then you're thinking about ways to prepare. And then a lot of, I found a lot of people that were just interested in general prepping. And so it was, it was a birth of the doomsday preppers era. And I'm sure, I mean, people had been prepping since the cold war and previously, it's not a new thing, but it was getting a little more mainstream. And so the kind of advertising we used for those products was totally different than the kind of advertising we use if we're doing B2B sales. And that's different than the kind of stuff that we do if we're doing retail rather than like the direct to consumer approach. So it's been really fascinating to see a few of the different models and be like, search works great if people know what the topic is. Search doesn't Mm -hmm. work at all if they don't know. Social media is great if you have something interruptive and, and the economics work because I feel like the economics of the product dictate a whole lot about what channel is going to be a good fit. Absolutely. And you also mentioned something a little bit earlier that's, you know, fairly important too, that podcasts are a great way to kind of talk about the things that our family don't want to know about. But these are the things that really dictate our day to day and how we interact. It's not just our jobs and creating these things. You are physically touching what I work on every day. (laughs) And, you know, in a way, this podcast has been very therapeutic in a way for me because as I talk to more guests like yourself, and I'm also making correlations for my own career and my experiences, you know, this new age marketing is very complicated because, you know, even looking at the software side of business, which is where my forte is, and of course, B2B marketing is my specialty. However, explaining that to everyday people, there is a huge difference between B2B marketing, B2C, and now they're even dubbing B to D, which is business to development marketing. So you've got business to business, business to consumer and business to developer marketing. And marketing really is expanding faster than people can understand. And, you know, I get a lot of people that reach out and say, well, how do I break into product marketing? For example, have you been through all the avenues of marketing to understand this is where you want to be? Because this is not for the faint of heart. I will say that. So it's interesting, you know, to hear about how 
even with the new age marketing, a lot has changed because if you were in that classic sales motion, and this plays nicely and in, in a little bit to your background as well, you know, when you're working for larger organizations that were licensed sellers or they were widget sellers or selling desktop applications, there's a huge difference between how that marketing works versus how everyone in the SaaS space sells because marketing and sales go very hand in hand together. And I know you were at crisis education where you started your own sales motions and had to come up with product ideas and, you know, the average order value. Technically, without the title, you did a bit of product marketing without even knowing it. You know, you did the complicated things that no one quite understands. And, you know, we're still building names and departments for these things. Product marketing being one that's still fairly infant in this era, but it's been around, but what's old is new. But Back to your experience in, you know, creating sales motions, did you find that it was easier to break down barriers to work with other departments because everything is so interconnected now? That's a great question. I think that most of my experience is in the startup world. And so companies for the first $10 million in revenue, I think are just focused on getting the sales equation figured out for their flagship product. Maybe maybe some companies, it's the first million that they're trying to crack. But I think probably up to 10 million, you're like, what do we do? What's our portfolio of products? And how do we sell that at a level that's profitable? And I think when everyone knows you have to get sales working to have the company survive, they're willing to answer your emails pretty quickly. <laughs> they, they don't have a lot of silo action going on. And the great thing that I've been super lucky to have is good partners. So I co-founded Christ Education with my partner, Chris Oyelokor, and it was just the two of us for the first couple months. Right? And then as we added revenue and gross profit, we could add more people. So it was a really interesting space to play in because we did a lot of private label or reselling for products that we thought looked great. And there was a product called the Four Foot Farm is what we called it. And it was a tower garden that was like a barrel that they would stretch out the sides. You could plant a lot of different plants in it. And then the really cool thing, it's gross, but cool, was they had a worm tube down the middle and then the worms would go through and it was just made for great soil. But that product I found on, I think it was Kickstarter, I saw the product on Kickstarter. I thought, this is a great product. These guys have no idea how to sell it. And I just reached out. So it was a very random thing because we had an ebook that we had sold and we go, okay, we know people want this. How do we increase average order value? And what's going to be useful for our customers? And so it was, do you want the thing and know how to do it? And then do you want the done for you option? So it was a really simple upsell. But the exciting part for me was that I had to learn about the economics of product development and go, okay, here's, here's how the finance side works. Don't know that that was something I was really familiar with. I studied engineering in college and you don't learn a lot about finance and engineering, but the good news is you do a lot of arithmetic. And I feel like the new age marketing kind of like you were talking about is now so much more math driven. I don't even want to say data driven because I think sometimes our data is 
not perfect and we put too much weight behind it. But some of the simple math has to work, right? The cost to acquire a customer, like the financial equations aren't difficult. You don't need to have gone to business school to do them, but you got to be able to do arithmetic. And I think that marketers from the past were a little more hand wavy and they were the creatives. You still got to be creative. But today it seems like a big difference is you have to have comfort level with the technical side or else you just get left behind and you can't attribute anything and it's really difficult to do your job well. I don't know if that's been your experience too. No, absolutely. I you've, I mean, you hit the nail on the head right there. I think, as you said, traditional marketing was so heavily embedded in just the creative side of it. If you want to be a really good marketer today, you've got to be more than just creative. You almost have to be a data scientist if that's what you're interested in. Data quality is always going to be an issue regardless of where you are. But I think if you as a marketer are a little bit more familiar with data analysis and feeling comfortable with that kind of work, you can influence how data is inputted and outputted down the road. And I think that's where I've had a a little bit of a, a leg up is, you know, my background starts off in public relations, moved into marketing, somehow became a solutions engineer for the next 10 years. But the skills that I learned there helped me be a better marketer today because I understand how data works. I understand what it should look like. I know what outputs to look for when I'm looking at, you know, Salesforce or any of our product data or any of our whatever we have. And I think that's throwing off traditional marketers to your point, because you're being asked to do a lot more that wasn't part of traditional marketing. You know, the financial side of it doesn't matter what part of marketing you're in. You're going to touch financials at some point, whether it's through a budget Now it's not just the budget and how much you're spending on creative and advertising. It's also how much budget do we have for campaigns? And a campaign can include buying sales leads. It can include, you know, software purchases now or things that help you. So it's more than just the let's put money behind an ad. Yeah. Yeah. The programmatic, big programmatic buys, I'm sure still happen, but I think it's getting a lot more nimble as the attribution. I mean, attribution is a total own nightmare, but I feel like you've got to be ready to dive in and see by channel, how is this doing? How does this campaign look compared to other campaigns? And I like it a lot. I think we just acquired a e-commerce business and it's been so fun to get back into search ads because search is a very different thing than most of my career had done display ads and search is just such a different animal. And the bidding strategy, Google is getting rid of a lot of the manual bidding options, which makes me very sad because you have, (laughs) I feel like they optimize very well for large data sets, but their statistical significance, you know, we're not, we're not statisticians. We're business people. Business people don't care about confidence. They care about profit. And I think we borrowed this idea from science that you need to be very, very certain and, and I don't think so. You look at the Jeff Bezos or the Colin Powell's and they talk about the 70% rule, which is basically one standard deviation, right? But the researchers want 95 or 99% confidence. And it just isn't necessary, I think, for good media buying or for good marketing campaigns. So anyway, all that aside, <laughs> I just am really excited to get back into search because it's a fun place to see how different it is than all the display stuff or the B2B outbound that we'd worked on. And it feels like the same principles work if you are good at analyzing your data and you're good at setting up a good relationship with finance, then you can make some progress. But gosh, it's so specific too. I don't know how you've dealt with changing 
the focus so often because it, it's a really difficult thing to be good at everything. It really is. And this is why like, I haven't touched search in a few years because I feel like search is the one area that requires 24-7 management and knowledge and keeping abreast of that space because of how many changes. And I can understand why there's so much change when it comes to search optimization. I mean, if I think back 15, 16 years ago, when I first paid for my first Google search ad, first yeah. off, the cost, the cost was much higher. The cost was way higher. The bidding was less competitive because there was less, you know, websites to bid against if you were in a very niche space. But now everyone has an online business, which makes that space much difficult to keep abreast of because with this many people and everyone has a store and everyone has an online presence and there's a digital store for everything or service or whatever it is you're providing on the internet, bidding is competitive when you Definitely. want to search. So I can, I can totally understand why, you know, that space is changing as rapidly as it has, because look at just the dynamics of, of how many people are able to now make a bid. Even if you're a small mom and pop shop, you wouldn't have been able to afford an ad on Google probably 15 years ago. Today, what's a couple cents for a click? Nothing. Yeah. And they're automating most of the bidding processes. So you say, Hey, Google, here's a tiny budget. Here's 500 bucks a month. And they say, we'll get you clicks. And yep. they do. And a lot of them convert and you go, okay, well, I'm making some money back and this is great. But now Google is, feels like a little bit of a conflict of interest sometimes too, because their CPAs are often higher with the automated bidding than they are with the manual bidding. It yeah. is more hands-off. And for the mom and pop shop that doesn't have that expertise, it's perfect. But for other people, it just drives up the bid if you were bidding manually before. Yeah. And I mean, even one thing that's fair, my boss actually said this to me the other day. He's like, wait, I can put a stop. And I was like, yeah, you, you can put a <laughs> yeah. stop on your advertising or spend. Like you could set a limit now. Yeah. You couldn't. 15 years ago, there was no limit. You paid for every single click. And I was that jerk knowing this in the background that would simply click on ads or watch an entire ad just so I know the company could pay for it. Because, I mean, if you're going to put it in my face, I might as well make you pay for it for wasting my time as well. That was just me. That was my, I'm going to get back at you. But now I can't really do that because now knowing that people put stops, so I was like, well, that ended the fun for me. <laughs> yeah, the pre-roll ad thing, I felt like, I'm surprised they still do it, that they give, they only charge on the views because from a branding perspective, Monday.com is the one that comes to mind first, oh, but God, yeah. I've never watched a whole Monday episode and their branding is stuck in my brain because I've seen so many Monday pre-rolls. They didn't pay for any of those impressions. What a deal. I know. No, I've watched the whole thing. Like I said, I was that jerk that watched the whole thing because you just wasted my time. I think they're like my number one target for everything. It doesn't matter where I go. Monday.com ads are everywhere. It's really annoying. I'm with you. I get a lot of Monday.com ads. Yeah. God, now I'm going to go play Candy Crush and that's what's going to pop up. <laughs> <laughs> what was super interesting on the B2B side, there is a Google ads agency that was running long form content for their top of funnel ads rather than the two second use monday.com as a great project management tool, top of funnel ad. And these were 30 minute to one hour videos. And they were spending a hundred grand a month to get these videos in front of people. And it was converting very well. And in the B2B space, this has always been the question is how do you get people to consume your critical ideas? Because 
the use your project management software thing is fine. But for Monday.com, I only look at it if I'm already looking for a project manager software. It doesn't inspire any action. But for the Google Ads management software or agency, I thought they did a super good job. It's Solutions 8. That's the name of it. They did a super good job of teaching you how to do different things, problems that any marketing director might have to solve about search or display or performance max shopping ads. And I thought that was a cool idea. How have you seen the B2B content consumption marketing change over the years? It's interesting because I think B2B consumption was kooky at one point. I think when we were all, you know, in the very infancy stages of how do I put an ad out on social media, you saw some truly creative ads come out. I think what's really hard for some B2B, especially for those B2B companies that have been around forever, is how do you still stay relevant? Because let's not lie, you are looking like grandpas in this space, you know, (laughs) you are looking a little bit archaic. And, you know, when I do look at some of the B2B content that's still being put out there, there's two things that kind of stick out to me. One, you're trying too hard or B, you sound like everyone else and there is no product differentiation. And I think that's the one thing about B2B marketing that's kind of getting interesting is that we're following similar frameworks. We're all following similar styles or methodologies, et cetera, but it's translating to look very similar to every other company like you out there. So, you know, you see, let's take, just take something. Everybody's got a product. Every B2B software company focuses on ease of use or UI friendliness. And it's like, okay, so is everybody else, whether you're SMB, Mm -hmm. whether you're B2B, whether you're B2C, Ease of use is like the core thing that you want people to do, because if it's not easy to use your product, they're not going to use it. That's not a key differentiation from your competitors. And I keep seeing that one. And that's the one that irks me the most. But when I think about other things, it's like, oh, reliability. Okay. We're all in the cloud era, bro. (laughs) We're all using AWS. We're all on GCP or whatever it is that you want. It's pretty reliable. That's typically not you. Like you're going to have a great runtime rate. Like I think also my SC days kind of makes me a bit of a a douche when it comes to some of this. Like I love going into vendor calls and, and, you know, poking holes at everything they tell me because I'm like, yeah, this is all very markety, but tell me, let's do, let's get down to the meat and potatoes of your solution. Of course, you're going to have a 99% uptime rate because you're running on AWS, like it's reliable. How often does AWS go down? Yeah. They have a service level agreement with you that says, here's what we're going to do. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. But it's interesting too, because you did mention that you work with, you know, a multitude of small businesses, et cetera. When you're working with a customer or a client or whoever you want to take on, what are some characteristics of good business practice that you look out for before you decide to say yes, or is it just, this is a great idea. Let me jump on board and help them. That's a great question. So to clarify, are you thinking, what kind of business would we invest in, like bring capital or what kind of business would we take on as clients or what direction? Let's do both. Cause I think they're very different characteristics when it comes to both of those. And I think, you know, everyone's always looking for a payout these days. Cause it's so easy to start a, you know, your own company. And if you know how to code, you could create something. So yeah. how do you get capital versus be a client? Like what's the difference? That's a great question. So for client work, we, run the gamut, but a lot of our clients are actually more established. So we have some clients that are in the $100 million plus range and they have specific 
ideas that either they need to communicate in a new way or that they're trying to tease out. So sometimes, like you just mentioned, incumbents or companies that have been very established that have great distribution networks and have a lot of good characteristics aren't as good at explaining themselves because they came up in an era that they didn't need to explain themselves. So there we ask a question for every call. We, we like to do a brainstorming session with them. And what we ask is what one message do your clients, prospects, visitors misunderstand that would change your business if they did understand. And a lot of times we're talking to a specific division or they've got a product that they're working on. So for instance, if, if they said, well, we have great usability and we have great reliability, but people don't understand that our big thing, if they say the words AI, we're just going to hang up the phone. But the big thing <laughs> is that we have a proprietary algorithm that was trained on a a data set that no one else has. And it actually does predict versus something, you know, anything can output a prediction, but the prediction might not be any good. So mm -hmm. explaining how the prediction works and what is behind that is the kind of fun stuff that we get to do. So I, I look and say, like, is there anything there? And it's a stupid question, but so much of the software world today is identical to other pieces of software. And so there's nothing really interesting going on. And marketers can't make something boring, interesting, or they can't make something that is a knockoff of another product somehow different. It's That's not marketing, right? It just doesn't yep. work like that. So that's the first question is, do you have a product that is any good and any different? Because if not, we've got a problem. I'm going to hold up my sign for the second time this season that the audience can't see, but it's one of my favorite quotes and it's from David Oglevy and it says, great marketing only makes a bad product fail faster. Preach, Esther, preach. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think sometimes you get people that will come to you and say, Hey, we'd like to be a client. We have the budget to be a client. And you say, you should probably return that money to shareholders because you don't have a great product. And I know that you got a good VC check. I know that you have a great board. And I also think you don't have anything going for your product. So it's a tough conversation to have. And generally, we try to be respectful about it. But that's my big question. Is the product actually good? Yeah. Because we want to tell good stories. And we want to... I, I really like working with pharma or with uh, medical device because a lot of times they have something cool that they did that's patented. So you get to go through a mechanism or you get to go through a new device that has some innovation that they, they had to spend a lot of R&D money to figure out. And so those are really great clients to work with because they just don't know how to get out of the clouds and come down to earth and explain what it does. Like engineers do not speak English, they speak engineering. <laughs> yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. It's very true. And uh, learning a little bit more about the medical science or even life sciences sector is mind-boggling to begin with. But it's amazing yeah. how many loopholes also exist in the medical device industry. Because as long as you got a patent, even if it was from the 80s, you make one small modification, it does not have to be repatented. I learned that recently, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah. No, it's a fascinating patent law is an area that I don't know that I would say I would like to study, but I'd like to have a friend who studied patent law so I can ask him all my questions. 
or oh, her. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> There's a few of those friends. There's a few of those I need in my life as well because yeah. I got a million questions and I need some answers to some of them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we, we know who you want to work with. Now, how who gets your investment dollars? What, what is the criteria they possess? That's a great question. So there's different angles that people will take for investing. And we don't do much venture investing. Generally, it's a business that has shown decent traction. And they've got some problem that either we're interested in helping with, or it just is a problem we've solved before. And so it would be relatively easy. Nothing's easy. Like, there's no easy problems. So it's a waste of time to look for easy problems. But a good example would be this e-commerce company we acquired. It was something that I was looking to get back into. I exited crisis education in 2015. And I love the agency world. And I thought I'd love to be back in e-commerce. So when an opportunity came up to acquire Renovation Reserves, the name of the business, then it matched up well with the interest, even though there were some holes in some of the systems. A lot of the business restart has been just updating systems, getting the bidding more strong, have, having software that can come in and actually keep your prices competitive and things that are not exciting and they're not sexy, but I find them really enjoyable as just a nerd to do. So I think that's a personal interest product that I would expect is only going to have a positive outcome with a lot of tender love and care. And then there's economic transactions, which would be like, uh, I like to go in as a limited partner on those kinds of transactions and say, hey, look, I know I think that this person running it is great. I think that they're doing an excellent job. I wouldn't want to mess with that problem, but I think they're going to do a nice job figuring it out. And so there it's usually that they showed enough traction. I like to invest in profitable companies. I think it's possible to grow and get profitable. And in the SaaS world, they try it. But there are companies that take a very, very long time to do it. And then you have to find someone else to sell out to. Where I, I just like building businesses that are profitable on a, an atomic scale. And then you get more atoms rather than having to figure out something brand new. Yeah. Now, I want to go back because you mentioned something that's kind of interesting. And I think it's a, a huge unspoken topic. Business systems. A lot of companies may have legacy systems. And to me, it's always mind boggling when someone is going through digital transformation in the year 2023. Cause I yeah. feel like I've been doing talking about digital transformation my whole career. You know, it happened. I've already done it. I don't know how many times I've done it now. But it's interesting to hear when you acquire on new businesses that you also need to look at their business systems. And, you know, I can only imagine the myriad of legacy systems that you've had to deal with. What are some of the challenges in, in, some, in bringing those businesses to the future? Because it's a huge challenge that we just don't talk about enough. That's a great question. A lot of times I think it's the whole ecosystem. So a great example would be this e-commerce business. E-commerce, you think, is pretty digitally innovative. They are going to be good about integrating new software. But every vendor you deal with is going to have a different system and you're doing stuff that would be perfectly done as an API, but you get an email with a CSV file once a month to update all your stuff. And you just like stab me in the head with an ice pick. Like, yeah. why are we doing this? <laughs> this is the dumbest thing ever. And so a lot of times it's, I think it's not just the first business, but if you deal with any manufacturers, then digital transformation for them is 
Now we email you the Word doc and you print it off and sign it and email it back. That was digital. And I'm like, why am I signing this? Where is like somebody find me an e-signature platform, please, for the love of all that is good. This is the biggest waste of time. I'm like copying yep. fields and preview. And then they kick it back because they say we need a wet signature. And I just think we are, I, those are 20 minutes we can't get back from our lives. Why are we doing this? Yeah. I mean, you brought up like the best example. Manufacturing is so critical in terms of our society and what we need it for. I mean, God, I like, I'm glad you also told the story about the barrels and and planting and shaping it out because I actually looked into one of those during the pandemic. In my mind, I was starting to freak out during lockdown. I was like, oh my God, grocery stores are empty. It's so expensive. I'm going to have to learn to grow my own food because what if all the supply chains fail? And lo and behold, we have seen it and we're about to see it again. Right now, there's over 100 ships. You could actually track all of this. Thank God for APIs and the, the access we have to, to data today. If you look at the Panama Canal, due to drought, it cannot be refilled. And there's over 100 ships that are backed up in the Panama Canal waiting for it to be refilled so they can move oh, on. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Like, it's insane. Little Great things like that. Exactly. Little things like that, you know, was making me kind of like, oh, my God. Like, you know, we, we rely on the manufacturing industry so much for so many different things, whether it's delivering food to us, whether it's the products that we touch and use every single day. It is a huge sector, but also so archaic. And you were talking to the girl that sold CMMS, so computerized <laughs> maintenance management software. And it boggled my mind because I remember having a conversation with someone that worked for KPMG. And SAP has been selling manufacturing software for as long as they have. There's other players in, the, in that space as well that are dedicated to that. How they did not come up with a viable e-signature solution to just add to the existing system blows my mind because you're seeing this huge shift of maintenance workers who need the technology. They know there's a system there. They, it just doesn't work for them. So they're moving out to the computerized maintenance systems, which now have to go talk to these older legacy systems. And in my mind, I'm like, first off, you're spending pennies on a CMS system in comparison to your larger EAM platform. So your, you know, enterprise asset management solution, you're spending millions on this thing. You're telling me that SAP and the other folks that sell such solutions could not build out a module to <laughs> attach to this thing that basically allows you to sign documents. I was like, this is just mind boggling. And it doesn't make sense yeah. to me because I think for a company as big as SAP, it would take them the minimal amount of bodies, developers time and money and research to build such a solution. Instead, you're seeing them open up the APIs to work with other vendors that do have it. So it's an interesting concept. And you know where yeah. people get stuck with that is the whole business system. Maybe the ecosystem just doesn't work well with all of these newer age things. Yeah. And it's so interesting because manufacturers are high tech in their way. They're very good. If you look at extrusion molding, just whatever their manufacturing system is, it's not like they're working with Stone Age tools there. No. Even the automation that they're putting on a lot of the factory floors is impressive. So it's not that these people are dumb. They're very, very intelligent. It feels like a lot of the busy work isn't a priority yet, or maybe since they live in that 
physical world versus maybe you and I live in a more digital world, then it doesn't feel as relevant or as real to them. I'm not sure what it would be. Well, it's interesting working for a solution like that. You know, a lot of it has to come down to time wasted because you're able mm. to, these guys are hands-on fixers. They can yep. fix the thing, they can get to it. But again, once you fix the thing, you've probably got to get someone in quality assurance to come and double check the work, which needs another signature, which then yep. has to go back to an approval process. Once that's there, okay, then your plant manager must do the final checks, make sure everything's honky-dory before you put this machinery back online. Yeah. It's a lot of time wasted. Like if I could just send you the work with pictures of everything that I did, step-by-step, step, whatever it is, all I have to do is just email that thing off to a manager. He just signs off, comes right back to me within a few minutes. All right, cool. Let me call the next guy that needs to do his checks. Yeah. Call the next guy that needs to do his checks. And it speeds up the process. So, oh, yeah. It, it's just little things like, and this is where it makes me laugh because AI is going to be such a huge driving force of the manufacturing and industrial sectors. Like, you could already see it being implemented today and how much time it saves them. If it automatically can detect that X machine has been working too many hours and might potentially be a fire hazard because it's been overworked, that is amazing. That could save someone's life. But on the other hand, we still haven't incorporated that AI component from the machines to the human level. You still yeah. got guys waiting on a signature. Like, come on, automate that already for them. Yeah. And the amount of money you lose, like you said before, millions of dollars that you lose when a line is down. It seems like a rounding error when you look at the software cost for some of the stuff. But I wonder if it's just an attention cost because <laughs> it's hard to keep track of projects and it's hard to push stuff forward. And so it just hangs out there for a while. Well, it goes back to the business systems, right? I mean, a lot of manufacturers will have an IoT that they connect to but that means you're building custom solutions into another solution. Yeah. That in itself is probably going to cost them a lot, you know, whether it is another server they need to to drive that data into, whether it is, you know, their own homegrown database that they have or any of the cloud solutions that they might be buying which now can talk to them via an API, but it's going to require not just an API from a single solution, multiple solutions which then raises the cost of all of this. Definitely. And development time is not cheap. That's one of my things that I'm most excited about with the GPTs of the world. I just feel like, gosh, if we can make developers faster, I don't think we're going to have any less development, but maybe it brings the cost of development time down. Yeah. And I found that even just what I'm doing simple stuff that is really nice to just say like, yeah, write these tests for me. And I wonder how in a few years have they, their tasks that it's still cheaper to write a function to do. But I just think of like taking all the unstructured data and turning it into structured data, working with these lack of APIs. Gosh, it's, it's going to be really wonderful as that compute time gets cheaper, because I think we'll be able to bring the manufacturers and other industries forward quicker because it won't be so developer intensive. Some of the stuff we can just do easier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even trying to revisit my old Java course, <laughs> there's yeah. so much that I don't know anymore because I have not kept on top of it. And yeah. I just remember using IntelliJ like years ago where yeah. I manually had to write every single thing. Now it has prompts. It tells me what I have to write with a few clicks now. I'm like, oh my God, three letters in, look at this drop down. I'm like, 
mind blown. I was like, yeah. that's enough to save me just a few minutes. And I don't, oh my gosh. Like, I don't code yeah. over like a basis, but I was like, this is game changing from the last time I used it to today. Yep. And just looking for bugs, you go, I don't know what it is you're doing something in a new language or one of these archaic languages. You know, I have no idea what the syntax is and it's super specific. It's got to be four spaces instead of one tab. And it finds it for you. I had a trailing space on something when I was trying to integrate a system and it goes, oh yeah, you have a trailing space here. Visually, I wouldn't see it. It's just really nice. Some of the features are really, really nice. Yeah. I mean, even the difference of entering in something in Java, whether it's uppercase or lowercase, can ruin your line line of code. What I love is that it has the preempted prompt, but I was like, is this one upper or lower? I can't remember. Oh, okay. There it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's lowercase. Cool. Yep. (laughs) Wow. Wow. We we totally nerded out here. Yeah, we covered the gamut. (laughs) (laughs) We really did. I appreciate all your time today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Where can we find more information about you, your businesses, what you've got going on? Yeah. Well, it was wonderful to be on here. Thanks so much for having me. So you can go to ServantVentures.com. My name is Lance Johnson and you can just go to ServantVentures.com or you can look me up on LinkedIn. I don't remember what my LinkedIn handle is, unfortunately. And there's a lot of Lance Johnsons in the world, but it's Lance Johnson and Servant Ventures. So hopefully that'll help you. But it was wonderful to get to hear about what you've got going on. And it's super fun to share a little bit about what marketing looks like today. Absolutely. And thank you again for coming on the show. Tune in for the next episode, guys. 